Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. With this week's show, we're off to Croydon once more. And the statistic that really jumped out at me from this week's recording was that between 1805 and 1905, Croydon expanded from a population of about 5,000 to a population of well in excess of 100,000. After a growth spurt like that, is it any wonder that the town is a little bit all over the place, if endearingly so? We're roving around town this week. We finished our journeyings off mic at Reeves Corner, where the pharmacy site remains melted from the heat of the burning furniture shop. Did you know that there were two Reeves establishments, one on either side of a junction? The original one, the more uh, historical building in which the Reeves business grew up, is still extant. And uh, actually, you can see a picture of it if you use the Acast platform to listen to this show. Well, let's get underway. It is the 27th of June 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, step out me. See things of the air, land, and sea. Some creep, some saw. Down the road, jam brand store. My heart aches for some far off place. Well, hello, hello, listener. Once again, I'm in Croydon. We are precariously near a tram track. Um, We heard all about the dangers of trams last week, but we also heard about some of the initiatives that are underway to promote Croydon and to uh, perhaps get rid of the idea that has been prevalent for some while in some quarters that Croydon is anything other than an unalloyed delight. We're on the right side of the tracks. We've avoided the tram. Behind me is a pedestrian mall. Looking down the hill... And this is quite a. This could be quite a pleasant view. There's a church in the background. You can imagine that uh, 50 years ago, this would have been almost countrified. Lots of shops. In fact, that, that's the one thing I can see absolutely everywhere is, uh, is shops. This really is a retail centre. The other entity of which I'm aware is James Naylor. He's the editor-in-chief of the Croydon Citizen, uh, which is both online and uh, in paper form. And uh, he is also the founder of Croydon Tours, which is where we come in. Oh, hello. Hello. We're ready to go. You very kindly offered to extend what was going to be a sort of three or four minute run around the town attempting to take in some of its delights into a full podcast. Absolutely, indeed. So um, what I'm going to give you today is a taste of kind of the amazing history that Croydon has to offer, but but not just its history, because the thing that really excites me, as much as being a, a tour guide in one part of my life, being, in, being the editor-in-chief of the Croydon Citizen in the other half, is actually the kind of amazing future that Croydon has, which I think is very much proved by actually lots of the really exciting things that have happened here before. So I will, as we go round, try and touch on some of those, those things as we go. I feel it's beholden upon me to try and introduce some opposing arguments this week. In last week's episodes, clearly we were in and amongst a group of people, yourself included, who are wanting to put forward a positive view of Croydon. And there's a lot to be positive about, that's quite clear. One of the ideas that comes across very strongly when talking about Croydon is that for a generation of people, it was a very unglamorous place to grow up in and rather mundane and, and not a lot to do, those sorts of things, a bit flat as an experience. And we're standing in the middle of a shopping precinct, which, if it weren't the sunny day that it is, well, it might not be the most exciting place in the world. D- definitely not. I mean, I think 
all shopping precincts are somewhat the same in that sense, that uh, they are places where you get your shopping done, you maybe have a relaxing walk around, or you perhaps do your shopping, perhaps a bit of a day out, but they're not necessarily the world's most exciting places. Although I think actually, if you, uh, I think you might well agree with me that actually as you look about in Croydon today, you could see that you're, it really is quite, quite an amazing range of different things on offer though, uh, all sort of from Main Street, High Street stores to sort of much smaller places, and a kind of an amazing array of different people as well that kind of call Croydon home. Um, not far from here as well we also have uh, an art gallery which I hope we'll have a quick look at uh, a bit later on the tour and we have sort of some wonderful kind of independent coffee shops and the incredible Surrey Street Market as well which is not only London's oldest continually operated street market it's been here since 1276 but in fact still perhaps unlike many of London's kind of more sort of gentrified corporatized markets it's still very much a kind of real street market where you can find pretty much anything so um uh, so I think uh, I think that, that's, that's a great place to begin. Something I would like to say as well, as we're still in this very particular spot, which probably obviously your, your listeners can't see, but I shall try to describe to them, is is some of that architectural diversity that I referred to before. That kind of is very symbolic of this Croydon spirit of putting one thing next to another, mixing it all in together, um, regardless of whether or not it's actually going to work. Uh, and I think that that's very much the spirit of it. So obviously, we last week we were speaking in the almshouses, which are just behind us. Um, these Elizabethan almshouses, actually, as it happens, the best preserved Elizabethan almshouses in the country, and a Grade One listed building. Uh, looking to the left, you have Alders, this fantastic sort of um, 1930s Oxford Street style shopfront. You've got. 80s kind of postmodern architecture opposite in Debenhams, 60s Corbusianism at the Barclays. You have the medieval church that you mentioned already. You have what one of my favourite buildings, which is the medieval KFC, which I think just captures the spirit of Croydon fantastically. You know, in a little cathedral city in the Shires, it would doubtless be a tea room, but here in Croydon, it's this very practical thing. It's well, a chicken I'm, shop. I'm sorry to say that in a, a town in the Shires, it would still be a KFC. Oh well, quite possibly so. But I, uh, but 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 this is a, like I said, a, a fantastic kind of medieval building. Sorry to linger on the KFC though, but I think one of the things that KFC does, I think I've noticed them doing this around the country, is that when they think that they have located their store in a town of uh, historical merit, they introduce into their frontage a little bit of wood effect, a couple of little wood stripes there, which I think is their way of saying that they're trying to fit in. Oh, that's a very interesting. Well, actually, I'm, uh, I think that's a, that's a very good point. That is something where I think so many English towns, because their their proposition is based fundamentally on being historical and twincy if you will that this becomes a really important thing what I would say about this example is that actually all of those are real so this is actually internally 15th century beams and uh, 17th century weatherboarding on the outside as well which hopefully we'll get a kind of closer look at as we walk down walk down the hill here so in very much all authentic and my former guest Yannick Pucci would be delighted to see the building on one of the corners here it's uh, curved and it is unmistakably deco yes absolutely fantastic that kind of very classic deco style with these sort of almost neoclassical but very geometric columns up and down the building as well very much coming from a time in Croydon when it was actually a very very wealthy place Um, and this is something I think that's kind of really interesting that's sort of forgotten now is that until fairly recently Croydon was actually very prosperous and rather than being as it is perhaps now sometimes used as a byword for sort of comparative suburban poverty it was a very wealthy place where you had these kind of rather rather grandiose actually high status buildings my general impression, and uh, I would have hesitated to have said it in the group environment in which we were last week, the place just needs tidying up a little bit. The, the architecture, as you say, is, is very rich and varied. There are a lot of the sorts of flourishes that you would, I guess, hope to see perhaps in a slightly classier sort of shopping area. For example, the clock sticking out there from 1884, the fact that there are trees in the shopping parade. You get the sense of flow as well going down the hill there. I think what seems to let the place down a little bit are the, the frontages. So I think that, that actually that's very true. I think a big part of it is about just keeping it tidier, keeping it nicer. But what I always say to people, though, is that you know, when you're in Croydon, what you want to do is look up wherever you go because when you look up that's where you see that kind of kind of really rich incredible diversity at the street level what we need to do a lot more of is just keeping it clean keeping it tidy but that's not easy because actually you know it, as you've probably already got great sense of here from the noise the bustle Croydon is an incredibly busy place that's kind of constantly in use and what it's like is more like a miniature city that's the kind of that's that's how busy this is that's what a complex and challenging environment it is but it's often managed like it's a small market town and I think this you'll see as a kind of consistent theme as we walk around that sort of the, the way that it's been historically perceived as this sort of 
commuter town out in the suburbs, fairly simple place, is actually, com- is actually quite out of step with the reality. And if the listener has heard last week's episode, and I, I'd urge them to, they will have heard us talking about the perception gap maybe in the 90s, 2000s, a little bit of a change, certainly between the Second World War and the decline of those big industries that were going on in the area through until maybe 10 or 15 years ago when things seemed to have started to change. Did Croydon just fail to keep up its PR message that, you know, this is what we're about? I think it did, and I think for a kind of crucial period it failed to change. So I think the shift in the 1950s and 60s was absolutely profound. So when the Croydon Corporation Act was passed, it's a very unusual piece of uh, legislation, a private member's bill in Parliament, that enabled Croydon Council to completely redraw the map of the whole town. Literally draw lines on it and say, right, all of these buildings are gone, they're going to be completely replaced with these buildings. And they were given the power by Parliament to do so. It went from being this very classic, fairly prosperous, relatively well-to-do Victorian commuter suburb into being this sort of mini Manhattan as they referred to in its day I must say probably because most people hadn't been to New York at that point I I would say but certainly this kind of this place that resembles a secondary American city in many ways this sort of the heavy high rise development that's just a few yards really from where we are right now and part of the aim of that plan was to very much turn it into the, the classic working model of the time so you have this sort of urban core where people commute into work, they leave in the evening, and then there's just nothing happening at night. And understandably, as you know, as, as culture changed in Britain, as working culture changed, people wanted to work in places more and more that were lively and exciting. Croydon actually got quite left behind, and sort of after hollowing itself out at night, it became this sort of strange, um, I guess, high-rise industrial park. And ultimately, that it, it never kind of really recovered from that. And we, you know, we've talked often about how, you know, I think there, there was a generation of people, probably a little older than myself, who grew up here and think of it primarily as boring. And I think that became a huge problem because once all of those people who thought of it primarily as kind of boring began leaving, that's, that's the word about Croydon that they took with them. That's your creative brain drain as well. And it's also, those people seem to me more likely to have a platform for their views. If you're an aspiring presenter or artist or whatever, you're going to go out there and you're going to get your feelings about the town you used to live in known. Uh, exactly, exactly. And I think it became a kind of... And ultimately, uh, it, that's exactly it. Because ultimately what happened was that Croydon became, for those people, a sort of byword for suburban boringness. And I think ultimately... Um, there, 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 this this, this has obviously has a huge negative effect, because, because those people had such a comparatively strong voice. There was a brilliant event that took place recently called Croydon Till I Die. Uh, and a, a group of, of national authors who've written about various themes about concrete development, the suburbs, etc., have come to Croydon to do a kind of series of, of talks, which they actually also take around the country, about what it's like to kind of grow up in the suburbs. And obviously when they came to Croydon, they focused it more, this more, more on this subject matter. And that was very much the world they described. You know, all, all these chaps are now kind of in their sort of late 40s, and that's, that's what they described. It was the kind of ultimate expression of this sort of the boring suburban place that you want to get away from in order to go to the bright lights of the big city. And I think that was tremendously damaging for Croydon. Listener, you have been patient with me. Or you've been uh, cursing somebody's name for the last week because we didn't answer in the last podcast the question of who of eminence has emerged from this town. I think this is a good moment to answer that question. Absolutely. So we've got quite a lot of different famous Croydonians. So um, I'm going to avoid Kate Moss. Oh, no, I've done it accidentally. But, for example, we have well, lots of people have been prominent in, in the arts, for example. A lot, of, a lot of people from the folk movement. So you have, for example, Kirsty McColl, for example, the folk singer um, Ralph McTell, the, the great actress <laughs> Peggy... <laughs> Didn't he, he moan about the oh, streets of London as all? Well? well, actually, that's very interesting because actually um, he later felt that it described Croydon very well, and it's thought that he based most of those experiences actually on Croydon, not on not on, uh. not on London. But he wanted the song to have a kind of wider appeal, which is why he chose Streets of London as a title. But I interrupted your list. Well, yes, absolutely. We have the uh, the great kind of actress Peggy Ashcroft, for example, um, and uh, in addition to this, the artist Sam Taylor Wood as well, also from Croydon. It's actually got a lot of kind of connections with the arts in general um, but almost more interesting than, than the people that are sort of just from Croydon and the people that have lived here at various points in time and I think that that's something that's really important to mention population of Croydon really exploded in the 19th century as it became a kind of one of these sort of archetypal London suburbs in many ways but, and the number of people who as a result ended up calling Croydon home because it was convenient and, and it was absolutely fantastic so you've got for example D.H. Lawrence taught here in Addiscombe 
You have Arthur Conan Doyle, also lived here in Croydon. Uh, and in, indeed, one of my favourite stories about that is the fact that um, it was after he'd killed Holmes at the Reichenbach Falls uh, that he wanted to, because he was tired of the character, uh, that he wanted to go back to practising optometry, which he did here in Croydon, which is fantastic. And I, I happen to know that Croydon gets mentioned in a Sherlock Holmes story as well. Yes, indeed it does. I mean, well, of course, because again, at the time, Croydon would have been, there would have been some uh, countryside still between London and Croydon at the time. And uh, being, an, again, an area where lots of sort of uh, relatively well-to-do merchant types would live in order to commute into town. So, again, uh, absolutely archetypal place for uh, some mysteries to take place. We are at a crossroads. Which branch are we going to take? So I think what we're going to do is we're actually going to walk down Crown Hill and we're going to walk into uh, what's known as the Old Town, uh, which was really the core of medieval Croydon. So pretty much the town up until really the uh, 17th century was bounded in a kind of triangle, perhaps only at its maximum length, maybe sort of 700 yards or so that we're sort of entering right now, uh, which is actually quite far from uh, East Croydon Station. It's a good sort of 10 minute walk away from the main station for the town now. And at the heart of this is Surrey Street Market, which, um, as I mentioned, is actually London's oldest continuously operated street market um, and would once have been part of a kind of network of lots and lots and lots of tiny streets in this area. So we're, we're coming up to the medieval KFC that I mentioned before and we can see some of the 17th century weatherboarding uh, that exists on the side of this building as we walk into a tiny little street called Bell Hill. So uh, if you just t- kind of take a look up there, you can see this. This I, p- I particularly like this because it gives me the impression of a Kentish village rather than, you know, the heart of downtown Croydon. Um, and then if we walk a little bit further along as well, and this is, this is difficult to see in the kind of bright sunshine that we have today, uh, but if you look up, you can actually see some of the medieval beams that make up the interior uh, now inside the uh, upstairs dining area of oh, the yes. KFC. This is kind of a great part of town to visit because there are, there are just a few of these architectural survivals that, that are left. Um, as we sort of discussed before, Croydon went through a massive planning redevelopment in the 1950s. And it was primarily that rather than the Luftwaffe that, uh, that resulted in Croydon being the modernist building that it is today. I think a lot of people assume that, that bombing was primarily the cause because no one can imagine that a town would do this to itself. But actually, uh, but actually, Croydon has this real history of massive reinvention because where we're standing right now was part of an earlier redevelopment at the end of the 19th century where the medieval town, which was pretty much completely existent with some buildings dating back to the 14th century at the time, was uh, pretty much wiped off the map and replaced with a completely new grid plan. And this was actually the kind of the first one of kind of Croydon's major reinventions. Can I just ask you about those swinging changes? Were they reckless? I think they are a bit reckless. I think there's something fundamentally a little bit reckless about Croydon as a place. You know, when we were standing at the top of the hill looking at the kind of variety of different architecture, the thing that's kind of really obvious about it is how little concern there is for things tastefully fitting in to an existing plan. You know, so much of British architecture is about uh, we must make this sure that this tastefully fits into a particular area. We're going to have slow, conservative change. And Croydon kind of rejects all that. One of the things that I often talk about is on my tour, at that particular point is how Croydon is in many ways the anti-Bath rather rather than having this sort of beautifully consistent very very conceived as a whole um centre, instead it is this, this crazy hotspot of different things, and, and that are the result of occasionally deciding suddenly to, to wipe the slate clean and rebuild. Um, and generally the motives of this are nearly always very pure. For example this medieval town was a fetid and really disease-ridden place. Where we are now there are probably about four or five major streets there were as many as 150 tiny alleyways and streets before. This was a breeding ground for cholera, for disease. So when the Victorians reinvented this, they, they were thinking of it purely from a sanitation point of view. They were, they were improving people's lives. Uh, that, has the, that, has been the, that was the result. It did improve hygiene locally. They probably were less concerned and were not thinking about the kind of impact that this completely changed environment would have on people. And although the ironic thing is today, I think, you know, looking around these medieval uh, and uh, Victorian streets, we would actually uh, say this is rather charming, perhaps compared to the 1950s reconception of what the town should be further up the hill. Um, uh, But nonetheless, again, was done with that kind of like uh, clear sort of very positive aims, but perhaps with not always the greatest consideration to long term impact. I get the impression that another difference between the Victorian and the present day outlook in terms of planning might be that 
there was a sort of a paternalistic we know what's best for you conception of the, the common man and woman whereas now I think we're much more consumption units and drawing people to the town and facilitating them buying stuff is a higher priority. Yes, I think so. And actually, that, that kind of reflects all the kind of focus of a lot of major developments. So if you uh, if you looked at the sort of 60s development, it was primarily about how can we build a huge office centre primarily. I mean, we're talking about the construction in the space of 10 years of 50 major office buildings, about 7 or 8 million square feet of offices, where there had only been a couple of such buildings before. You can kind of see it in, in the image of sort of the uh, that time of in the 1960s of uh, early computing, of different production units units moving between different places and it was simply more efficient to have the production units based in the suburbs closer to where they live than have them based in central London. Mm. So I think that was very much driving the philosophy of the design as people within this large machine. And I guess again today the one fear we sometimes have about some of the new commercial development, which I'm otherwise, I must admit, you know, very much in favour of is that it is precisely the consumption units you mentioned that we're like well uh, this is primarily about capturing retail spend from a wide catchment area rather than necessarily you know what is best in general for the common man as you say I think when we see the pump house just around the corner from where we are now you're going to see probably the greatest single physical expression of that ideology We've just emerged into the Market Street. Yes, this is indeed yep. is Surrey Street Market, the one that uh, has been, been here for many, many hundreds and hundreds of years. To our left, there's a colonnade that really reminds me of the Wild West. Yes, it has that kind of feel to it, doesn't it? Um, this is uh, actually, again, one of these sort of rare 18th century survivals of a building. And if you look at, uh, up upwards, you can actually see quite a lot of hooks along that were originally there would have been butcher's hooks hanging uh, for various meat. This was actually known uh, at one point as... Um, the uh, as Butcher's Alley because it was just completely or Butcher's Row because it was there was so much meat being sold here at the end of the market actually one time on one of my tours I had a, a 93 year old lady come on the tour very intrepid she remembers in her youth still there being literally just people hanging in the middle of the street now it's unimaginable uh, large joints of meat and blood literally running down the street uh, again not quite the sanitised perspective that we have today where are we heading? So we're going to go along Surrey Street. We'll try and weave our way through it. As you can see, one of the great things about this market is actually it's still really kind of quite thriving. It's not what it, what it once was. It was even once busier and larger than this and obviously been hit by all the changes that markets have, you know, with the rise of the supermarket, local metro stores, etc. Um, but you'll get a sense of this. And what I'll try to do is point out a couple of kind of notable buildings on the way through before we uh, go to our next major destination, which will be the pumping station. Well, it's good to see that the market is still not only existing, but as you say, thriving. There are porters with big boxes of stuff on their shoulder, passing us by, barrows with the equipment necessary for making the market stalls, and more punnets of tomatoes than you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. As we're going through, I'll just take a chance to point out two really great buildings. So in front of me, you've got the uh, really fantastic... Um, very well preserved 18th century pub the Dog and Bull that's one of uh, Croydon's quite, quite a few uh, centrally located grade 2 listed buildings again you can see lots of the original features there absolutely fantastic and then across the way just looking back at the uh, colonnaded building you mentioned earlier um, where we actually now have you can just see a, there's a Polish supermarket that actually is an interesting piece of recent cultural history is regarded as one of the arguable birthplaces of dubstep this used to be the Big Apple record store where uh, two members of uh, Magnetic Man uh, Ben and Scream actually created some of the first dubstep sounds as well. So again, part of that kind of rich lineage of Croydon being a place full of cultural genesis, although admittedly, what then sometimes happens is people often move away. Well, let's, uh, let's track on through. We're in the way of people going about real business here. Um, oh, absolutely we are, yes. We'll have to, as I said, weave our way through this market. It's not easy. This is actually this is a bit quieter than normal, if anything. It's not often easy to get a whole tour group of 20 people through here, I can tell you. How long have you been touring? So I've been touring now for about uh, three and a half years so I'm, I'm not uh, not, a, not a hugely venerable in that sense uh, I guess tour guide but I started the whole thing really because I've always had a bit of a passion for history and at some point after living in central Croydon for about a year I kind of just started falling in love with it and it, to me it just seemed like a, a very obvious move to take that kind of love of local history uh, a bit of performance as well I'm a bit of a performer and then and, and show people this, this, this much maligned place that was actually really fascinating uh, and that's kind of what, what I guess what brought me to it really we are approaching 
<laughs> well, it won't surprise you, listener, to know that this is a bridge that is in uh, a unique, uh, in its context, architectural style. It is a bridge that's uh, shiny underneath so that you can have a look at your bald spot and the market below, which stretches on. Uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic place. And as you say, a rather rather unique, sort of highly reflective bridge above us as well. Uh, again, connecting that the fact that we're one thing that this hides of this area is on a, a very, very steep slope. And so you've got the, kind of a lot of different roads built at different levels. Where's that voice coming from? Is that the uh, the hygiene goods fellow over there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He had me in his beady gaze. I, I, I think very deliberately advertising his wares to a wider audience. Oh, there. absolutely. Well, you know, you know, you can't blame him for a bit of free marketing now, can you? All, all I ever understand when I go through a market is uh, a pound. I go, oh, well, there's something for a pound. Pa- pa- pound a pound. That's generally that's generally the one thing that you kind of get very clearly. Well, we turn the corner and there is uh, a rather twee-looking. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a guess at this. I'm gonna say this has something to do with um, one of the Victorian decorative styles that uh, fell out of favour. Absolutely, it does. So this is indeed the uh, the aforementioned pumping station. But we should say that it looks far more like uh, it's castellated for a start. It looks far more like a castle in the early Victorian Arthurian style than it does anything else. I, I think I think I think it absolutely does. Although I, I'm tempted to think there's something a slight kind of almost Moroccan influence on it. It has this sort of slight almost Byzantine kind of look. The way you have these arches that look very very kind of eastern actually can we say um, before we say uh, anything else it's ridiculous if this is a pumping station <laughs> Absolutely. say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 online you'll experience the all-new cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Absolutely. Well, this is, this is actually something which is actually not, this is although a brilliant building and a, and a unique building in itself, was, is not a, was not very much not a unique trend in Victorian times. We talked before about that idea of this celebration of kind of municipal aims, of the idea of, of building these, these really important stru- structures for the public good. And often when they were built, they were built in these rather wonderful, grandiose, over-the-top styles. Um, there's a similar kind of, again, it looks physically very different, but a similarly over-the-top building in Wapping, where it was, it was a pumping station there, and also one, for example, at Streatham as well. Uh, this, this is co- kind of was quite a kind of common trend to have these these buildings that really celebrated uh, celebrated that kind of municipal achievement. Um, the Croydon one is particularly important because um, it's a building which is actually it was one of the very first such buildings to be constructed. So in fact, Croydon was the first place in the country to form a. Uh, municipal sanitation board in so this, this is sewage waters. pumping or, or is it water pumping uh, this is actually providing clean water so obviously we've just come out of the uh, old town area which as, as I said was crisscrossed by lots of tiny streets was pretty unhygienic didn't really have access to proper clean water so it was quite a, quite a priority to provide people with clean water and where we're standing right now is a huge underground water source um, quite close to the river Wandle uh, which was actually pumped was pumped from underneath where we are right now all the way up to Park Hill 
and then distributed by gravity all around Croydon. Now, they formed this, this municipal board in Waterboard in 1848, and that's, that's the earliest example of that in the country, and, for example, significantly predates Bazalgette's construction of sewers and sanitation in central London, for example. Um, and this is just another example of how Croydon, particularly in engineering, has often led the way. Um, and I guess a celebration of this, they wanted to construct something that was really, really impressive. And so you have this castle-like building in front of us. There's something rather odd going on as well around it we've taken a step through between two buildings and we find ourselves in the courtyard i suppose you'd have to call it around the pumping station there are one or two places there there's a pizza place that may be boarded up and a number of shop, uh, pretend shop fronts you know the kind when uh, they can't sell the shop or uh, a shop is yet to come so they pretend there's a shop there but in spite of the fact that we can see the bustling market from where we are, there's not a soul around us. It's rather eerie. It's, it's very strange. So um, one of the kind of the big themes of Croydon in the last 30 years is that it has consistently missed its timing. And it, or its timing has been terrible. So um, uh, in 2007, this square was built, was constructed, a big renovation of the uh, old telephone exchange building, which we can also see on our left as well, turned into luxury flats, a plan to make the pumping station into a kind of general kind of entertainment complex, maybe some kind of gastro pub. You can kind of picture it now in the developers' minds as to what, uh, what it would have been. And, uh, of course, in 2008, the developer went bust, uh, the entire economy went bust, and uh, the money never came to fruition to actually make the development happen. So it's kind of another example of where this really great idea that something in Croydon had never really fully materialised. Um, but it's t- tantalisingly close, isn't it? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's tantalisingly close. Now, the, due to a series of strange legal complications, this, this area was owned by the Irish government for quite some time. We didn't really... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm learning not to be surprised. Uh, which, uh, which was, which was as, as a result of a various series of bank foreclosures, ultimately on, on the Bank of Ireland itself. And uh, the ultimate re- re- result of this was that um, uh, was that they had no particular interest really in, in, in lots of sort of very local, detailed development. They were interested in just selling it on. It has now been sold on, and it's expected that it will... Um, uh, will emerge soon as some sort of some sort of venue. So, the early parts of this is that we've started. I, I mentioned in the previous podcast this street art gallery that's being created, and so around us now, gradually, the panels of these sort of fake shops that were put in about eight years ago are beginning to be replaced with sort of works of urban art instead. Um, and the and there is some talk, particularly of, of these finally be, these units finally being opened up as well, and shops moving in. And there is one such place already that, that's, that's joined us, which is the really fantastic. Uh, coffee shop slash art gallery slash workspace slash burger bar Matthew's Yard which is just opposite us here um, which is sort of the first kind of thing to open on the square and hopefully it will eventually be followed Followed, but as you say it's a, certainly very quiet today uh, Exclusive I think Yes exclusive. exclusive that would be the property developers term for it anyway I just want to go off piece a little bit and just pop our noses out down behind the pumping station there the thing that's attracted my attention is the sort of thing I had in mind when Croydon was first mooted as a podcast destination this looks like high brutalist to me if this wasn't built in the 60s uh, then i'll eat my hat um absolutely yeah this is the the monumental is one way to describe it um bt telephone exchange uh which dates from uh, in fact a little bit later than that about 1972 oh that's, so, that's a hat job yeah just yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, and what it is, it's this, like I say, it's the local telephone exchange, one of the most important telephone exchanges for the southeast, and was just sort of built right on the edge of the town centre next to lots of, as we can see here, tiny two-storey Victorian housing with sort of almost no sort of question as to context at all. It's, it's a bit communist, isn't it? It really is, it really is. Well, there's, there's a story that goes that uh, I, I must admit to say up front is probably a myth that Croydon was number one on the Soviet Union's list of nuclear targets Uh, not because they despised the architecture but because by uh, nuking this particular telephone exchange you would take out um, communications across the southeast because it's it's an important hub Um, I don't know who's seen these records who could who could who could make this kind of who would access this highly top secret information but um, I think it's it's a sort of wonderful story that highlights particularly why this this particular exchange was here as an aside to an aside, I've seen uh, what purports to be a genuine handbook outlining the Nazi invasion plans in uh, the early 40s, and they detail all the various buildings and towns that they intend to take over and precisely why. 
Uh, it makes for fascinating reading as you see the EMI record headquarters being turned into the Ministry of Propaganda, etc. <laughs> Which direction would you say will bear the most fruit? So uh, I think it would be it would be great to just wander a little bit down here just to see a little bit of the Croydon Palace and also talk uh, a little bit about John Ruskin's associations with Croydon. We have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and with me is James Naylor, who, uh, well, his, his job title has been upgraded while we've been taking that word from our sponsor, Audible. I've spoken to somebody connected with Matthew's Yard. I said my tour guide was uh, James Naylor, and he said, ah, yes, the unofficial mayor of Croydon. Well, it's, he's probably being too kind. Um, I do have that reputation just sometimes. Um, There's a bit of a loving going on here. A little bit of a, it's a little bit of a crowd loving. Well, I think that's partly the result of um, certainly a few years ago. There were quite a lot of people primarily kind of through Twitter, who kind of got to know each other in the local area, wanting to sort of make a bit of a difference. You know, we've talked before about the kind of great community activity that there is around. And that, I think, very much manifested initially as, as a sort of comparatively small group of people who kind of knew each other, all had the kind of common aim of, of just getting more involved, getting people more excited, doing more exciting things locally. So as a result, there's still quite a kind of little network of us, um, even though it's now grown a lot uh, you know, far beyond that, and I'm constantly hearing about new projects where I've never met the people involved, uh, which is which is really nice. Um, that's certainly kind of where that emerged from. Hmm. Uh, we should linger very briefly on our uh, sponsor's message, which is that if you are new to Audible, if you haven't tried it out yet, and uh, you're into words being poured into your ears in the fashion that we are demonstrating currently, but perhaps in story form, also in non-fiction form, then Audible could well be for you. It's uh, an audio book service, a perfect thing if you're sitting in your car or wandering around enjoying the sunshine. And the URL is www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. If you sign up for a free trial, and that's a 30-day free trial, no obligation to buy anything, you'll get a free book and it's yours to keep and uh, that doesn't stop when the trial stops. But if you like it, and you will, then uh, for a very small monthly fee you get uh, extra audiobooks which are also yours to keep and enjoy at your leisure. If you've already signed up more than 12 months ago, then another free one awaits you. And if that were the case with James Naylor, then the title he would be picking would be what? It would be Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. That probably is my favourite novel and that will that will take some time to listen to it's about a thousand pages in print um, but uh, that would certainly be my pick that's what I really love about Audible actually I use it all the time and they don't give you abridged versions you get the full uh, whatever it might be 12 hours 20 hours I've, I've genuinely got uh, War and Peace unabridged uh, from Audible <laughs> And, you know, you get this monthly token thing with them, and uh, one of my monthly tokens got me the complete works of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, f- absolutely fantastic. That sounds that's absolutely great, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let's return our focus to Croydon, and we're going to drift out into the sunshine... We really picked a good day for it, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. We're very lucky today with the weather. Is it uh, always like this in Croydon? Uh, well, much as I would like to say it's always sunny in Croydon, uh, even I can't really stretch to that one. That's a, a, we've been quite fortunate today, and I'm just very glad it was such wonderful skies. I'm assuming you are yourself a Croydonian. Yes. Uh, so I grew up not too far from here, in the very south of our borough, in a place called Coolston. Then um, I moved away with my parents. They moved to Somerset. And to be honest with you, I had no expectation of coming back. Uh, I thought, you know, Croydon, that's just where I grew up. Bright lights, big city is where I want to go. I don't really want to want to hang around here. Then um, I was kind of running my own business at the time and I was looking for a sort of affordable place to be based. And it was suggested to me, well, why don't you just try Croydon for a bit? Because you know that you'll get a good cheap deal, right? So I sort of thought, okay, I'll I'll give this a shot. Uh, And so about five years ago, I I moved back in. And and somehow in the first year of living here, and I'm not really sure exactly when or how it happened, I kind of fell in love with it. And and I I suddenly realised that this place that I'd perhaps, you know, come in on the bus to do a bit of shopping and not really much else when when I was a child was actually this 
really quite amazing place that had lots of exciting things going on, people that wanted to do exciting things, and a kind of really rich history. And, and I think that's, that's how it grew on me. And we should say a word as well about the Croydon citizen. Well, absolutely we should. So... Um, I'd been running the tours for a little while, uh, kind of getting my message out there, I felt, a little bit, and talking to people about about, about, about it. And I thought what was required and, and was really something that was a bit broader in a remit, a sort of discussion forum, I guess, that would engage people on kind of more interesting subjects and some of the kind of genuine problems and challenges we face. I mean, there's, there's kind of no getting away from the fact that Croydon does have some kind of, you know, some sort of serious, various social issues as well as a kind of an image problem. So what we wanted to do was, was create a kind of citizen-driven platform for that by, by creating a kind of truly citizen-driven newspaper. So ordinary people writing stuff, a team of editors would then workshop and then develop in order to produce it to a kind of truly publishable standard. Uh, a kind of fusion of, I guess, a traditional newspaper with blogging. And the citizen resulted. Resulted. People loved it, and uh, we were able to do it very pretty quickly. You know, a year after we launched online, a crowdfunding campaign to take it into print. And we've been in print now since, uh, I guess, for the very end of uh, 2013. And I picked up my festival copy, and it's a it's a good looking beast. There was an article that caught my eye on the on the back of this uh, latest edition, which I think was t- uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Twenty reasons to be cheerful about Croydon, or something of, of that yes, sort. Yes, twenty reasons that Croydon isn't boring, which I. Uh, which was actually a response to an article that I wrote where uh, I actually said that I had a, a piece calling for Croydon to be to make it less boring because I'm of the strong belief that actually a, a kind of thriving cultural life that just makes people's lives more interesting is what the kind of town needed more than anything else um, only to be then uh, robustly proven wrong that, to even suggesting that there was a, a lack of such a thing by one of our readers who then put together a kind of BuzzFeed style list of the 20 kind of exciting things that are already happening here quite against what I'd said Buzz being the operative word here number 13 Croydon beekeepers bees have been around for over 100 million years and I bet you've never seen a board <laughs> I bet you've never seen a bored bee Croydon beekeepers <laughs> welcomes new members and visitors to its apiary in Purley, where the award-winning honey is produced. Well, exactly. That's I mean, that, that's what I love about this list. It's the sort of thing you'd find that it might be an interesting coffee shop, it might be a kind of an art collective, or it might be a group of beekeepers. I mean, you, you really will kind of find everything. That's that's the mixed bag that is Croydon. We're going to go and find something. What are we going to find? So we're just going to walk a little bit down the street here towards the to give us a sense of the talk briefly about the River Wandle, which would be good, and then hopefully just see a little bit of the Croydon Palace. Now, we mentioned before that the area we passed through was significantly underused at the time we passed through it. Somebody has decided to remedy that by creating uh, some metalwork looking like shoppers. Yes, uh, so uh, th- this, is a, this is a very interesting sort of little project to create a series of bronze sculptures where you have um, three kind of famous or adopted Croydonians. So you have, uh, you have Peggy Ashcroft, the actress, and the sitting on, on, on one side. You have Ronnie Barker, who I should note is not from Croydon. Oh, sorry, Ronnie uh, Corbett, rather, sorry. I was going to say, none, none of those are Ronnie Barker. None of those are Ronnie Barker, you're quite right, sorry. We have Ronnie Corbett, who is, of course, not from Croydon, but has actually lived here for, 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 for a very long period of time because, you know, he likes it so much as a place to live and then also uh, Britain's first kind of black composer and foremost uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor so he wrote his kind of uh, opera Hiawatha and actually it was an unfinished opera of his recently it was performed at the Fairfield Halls um, his music still delighting many people another one of those sort of adopted Croydonians was uh, obviously the foremost cultural critic um, John Ruskin uh, who a lot of people don't realise is associated with Croydon. They're probably just a bit mystified by the fact that there's, there's a few Ruskin houses, Ruskin, various Ruskin schools about. about. His family were actually from Croydon, and his m- mother came from a family of publicans who owned, owned a pub here, and he actually spent a lot of time here as a child. He actually writes his autobiography that uh, one of his kind of favourite activities was playing in and around the River Wandle and all the, the still ponds that used to sit around there, which on a day like this would have been very beautiful the sort of by the riverbanks um, and, and he said that the, the experience of playing in those ponds by this river wandle and looking back to the low red roofs of Croydon was one of the most foremost again most powerful influences on his entire notion of aesthetics and I, and I like this because the idea that Croydon positively influenced the aesthetics of possibly the world's most famous architectural critic is, uh, again, kind of one of those things about how this town has played this sort of quiet but important role 
in, 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 you know, throughout history. The street that we're on now, uh, if you're following... I'm, I'm, I never know whether to give street names. I wonder whether there might be somebody out there who likes to know exactly what junction we're on. Um, assuming uh, that for some strange reason you do, we're on the junction of Charles Street and Howley Road right now. And uh, this is a very calming-feeling street. It's uh, very suburban in feel, terraced houses. Yes, and, and, and I think this is and, and interesting because, of course, up until the end of the 19th century, this was pretty much entirely those still Wandle Ponds uh, that John Ruskin used to play in, and it was only really redeveloped in a sort of large scale all with one go at the end of the 19th century. And again, it's this classic thing where it's this, this street of very ordinary Victorian terraces that run right up against giant, brutalist telephone exchange... Uh, the pump house that we've just come from um, again all sort of wonderfully thrown together and it also hides the fact that just behind here you have uh, the grade one listed palace which we're about to have a look at now I'm trying to imagine uh, looking at this little uh, semi-detached cottage here a very modest two-story thing I'm imagining that one day you get the letter through the door from the council mentioning that they're going to be building something just on the other side of the street and you think okay yeah I mean we could, we could do, there's a bit of space there we could do so and this uh, 14-story uh, <laughs> hard-edged monstrosity starts to emerge <laughs> Um, it must have been pretty shocking. I mean, to be honest, based on the, the planning policies of the time in which the council were empowered to just pretty much wipe the slate clean, I'd be surprised if they even got a letter, to be honest, to tell them that it was even even happening before this giant building suddenly emerged out of nowhere. So you think they just opened the curtains one morning, oh, Derek, come to the window, you're not going to like this. And, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, I think that's probably pretty much how it happened. <laughs> Away we go, down a similar sort of terrace here and uh, there are trees abounding at the bottom of the short street. Have we got any uh, Croydon facts that aren't easily going to fit in? We've got a very short walk to, uh, to fill here. Oh, absolutely. Um, so trying to think of what the sort of best Croydon facts that, that sort of fit in. Uh, I guess for me, one of the ones that's kind of, again, forgotten, but it's another industrial first, is that actually Croydon is the site of the world's first rail, public railway of any kind. So that was the Surrey Iron Railway that ran from Croydon to Wandsworth. Uh, was built in 1802. So it actually, 1802? Yes, it predates the steam locomotive. So it was actually a horse-drawn railway. But it's the first time in the world when anyone had the idea of constructing a railway where you would then um, uh, allow lots of different freight to be carried on it. So, that, so things like railways with inside mines had already existed, for example, but actually as a, as a major route connecting two places, this is the first one of its kind in the world. On the way down on the train, I noticed that there were quite a few stretches of railway arches that were being... I wasn't sure if they are being entirely demolished, but certainly they were having a lot of their structure knocked apart. Is that part of that original railway system? Uh, yes, part, part of it is. I mean, so Croydon really exploded in population as a result of the railway. So to give you an idea of the change and the scale of change, in 1805, Croydon's population was 5,000. Again, you know, relatively decent size for a town of the era. You know, by no means small. By... 1905, it was 135,000. And that's how much the town had completely exploded and was transformed from prosperous market town into this huge commuter suburb uh, and and primarily because it was such a centre for the railway so y- this is the point where the main lines from London Bridge and Victoria meet to make the main Brighton line down to the coast uh, it was the point where the Surrey Iron Railroad already existed up to Wandsworth and numerous other routes connected I mean the tram link that we you know we talked about a bit is actually built on lots of former railway lines as part of that cluster around Croydon so it became an obvious site for engineering for example and lots of engineering firms kind of took off in the second half of the of the 19th century and Croydon as a result um, so uh, yeah the railway has always been really important to the local area we're now arriving on the corner here and I think it's really quite a surprise you suddenly walk out of this very ordinary terrace street and you're suddenly facing an archbishop's palace uh, and in fact if you, if you just look across the street we're going to walk across now uh, you'll see for example immediately uh, a genuine 15th century half timbered building um, a, a very rare for completely wooden buildings like that to even survive this brilliant 18th century brick long gallery that encases the original Tudor long gallery where Elizabeth I danced with John Whitgift and then which we can't see because of the sheer quantity of foliage right now but just behind this the medieval great hall as well as the building which as we we turn around the corner we'll get a slightly closer look at Um, 
This is probably, if I have to pick a favourite, maybe even over the almshouses, my favourite building in Croydon because it's just such a revelation. And you just can't imagine that this is only a 10-minute walk from the sort of high-rise Alphaville that sits kind of atop the hill where most of Croydon's office buildings are and the most recognisable site from the train, that you have this sort of oasis of, of calm that sort of resembles a sort of very attractive National Trust property. Mm, yeah, arch- arches of roses over the door there. Uh, I don't know if it's just because of the, the context in which we tend to find them, but there seems always to be something very restful about the Tudor, the early Tudor architectural style. Yeah, there is. I think it, it's, I guess, compared to the sort of um, comparatively very muscular and brutal scale of medieval architecture, it, it was a lot homelier, smaller scale, more human scale, and it had that sense, there's still a kind of quiet grandeur to a lot of it, but not as imposing, perhaps. I guess because its aim was more built around livability and less about sort of imposing symbolism like a great cathedral would be. Well, we're coming to the end of our tour i suspect we are indeed i was determined not to sound cheesy about this it has successfully transformed any preconceptions i had of croydon oh well then I'm, my job is done <laughs> i suppose there's one question left that i haven't addressed and i realize i should with this being the Londonist out loud podcast is croydon london croydon is now london And I think that's the kind of crucial thing. It suffered from an identity crisis for a very long period of time. So when it was uh, the market town in you know in the middle of the countryside with a fair distance between it and london it was separate place but in the particularly in the 20s and 30s as you know as london suburbs exploded like never before and you have the whole the whole kind of interwar housing the gap did close completely but it took a long time for people to recognize that that croydon effectively economically was already independent there was no countryside left between it and and, and the town and most people who lived in Croydon worked in London it it took a long time to realize that it was part of London even though it officially became so in the 1960s even today you'll find a lot of people in Croydon who will who will will plead that Croydon is very much Surrey Um, but I think as we've explored today Croydon does not look very much like Surrey it has none of the properties and characteristics of what we associate with Surrey the reality is that now it is this mini it's this mini metropolis inside a mega metropolis it is a intrinsic part of london it will always retain its own special identity as this little center onto itself but the reality is the, 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 when it comes to culture to people to economics all of those things it's very much part of london and i think it benefits hugely from being that so i'm very much one to to, to celebrate that as being just one really fantastic part of a really amazing world city if I add anything else, I shall be reducing the impact of that final <laughs> flourish. James Naylor, thanks very much indeed. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that is all for this week. My thanks for this week to James Naylor. Thanks too to Chris Baker, Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.